The following message is by Pastor Steve Clark of the Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City. More information is available at our website, www.slcevfree.org. Your name, Father, Son, and Spirit, for making it possible for us to draw up next to you and cry out, Abba, Father, Dad, to you. These things have already been said this morning. We've sung them this morning, but we, we praise you for it and acknowledge that it is by you and your plan and your initiative and your work that that is possible. So all praise and all glory and all boasting is due to you. You are a good God. You are a kind and merciful God. You have great power and you have wielded it to save us and to to make us now here into a church to commune with us daily, even right now, to give us your word and preserve it for us and now illuminate it in front of us. You have done marvelous things. Thank you. You are good, great and good, God. And Lord, we acknowledge, sadly, that sometimes we forget that and turn away from it, sometimes deliberately and sometimes almost accidentally, it seems, inadvertently. And our clear view of you fades as the light dims and we are drawn elsewhere. And so, Lord, I pray that this morning you would address that problem in us, a tendency to grow cold in the heart, even if we still keep up appearances on the outside. The tendency to grow cold in the heart and to die. Lord, address that. And maybe even, Lord, this morning you would call some to you for the first time who are dead on the inside because they have never been made alive. Call them, Lord, to call them to faith, save them. And for others here this morning, Lord, perhaps you would, you would ordain that this morning would be a, a significant turning point, a revitalization, a revival even, in individual hearts that have grown cold, in a church, in a nation, in a world. So towards that end, Lord, I ask you, Father, to commit your spirit to the work of opening eyes. Commit him, Father, I ask you, to the work of illumining the Scripture and causing this word to fall on receptive soil. Cause it to grow and produce fruit. To produce fruit of change, of growth, of life. Oh 
Lord, as has been prayed, I would ask you to have your way here with us, to lead us even now in confession of sin if something comes to mind, to shut off all distraction that that may arise, to prohibit our enemy from coming in to steal away our concentration. Lord, speak through your word and build your church and give us hearts that are that are on fire for you, that are warmed by that fire, that are stirred by it to action. But an action that comes from a heart, that comes from a heart. God, do that. Work in the heart. So I pray this, Lord, and ask you to move, that you would be honored and that your church would be built and blessed. Would you do that this morning? pray this in your name. Amen. turn our attention this morning to the beginning of Revelation chapter 3. We've been working, over the last couple of weeks, we've been working through these first three chapters of the book of Revelation, looking there at the, the pronouncements to the seven churches. And the reason that we're here is that we want to read these, these letters, these statements that God, God the Father, Son, and Spirit has given to these particular churches for the sake of all of the church reading it. We want to read these things so that we can grow so that we can become a church that is more pleasing to the head of the church, Christ. Last week, we looked at the letter to the church in the town of Thyatira. And in that letter, Christ brought some heavy criticism against that church. There are parts of that letter that are remarkably stern. He looked at the church there, and, and he was greatly troubled by its toleration of false teaching within the church. And that's the issue within the church. It, it, it's not the church's job to, to judge the false teaching going on out there. We are not responsible for that. We, we are responsible for this in here. And the problem in Thyatira was that they were not concerned to judge the false teaching within. They were just tolerating it and letting it go on, kind of minding their own business. And it was having significant destructive effects on the church. And so Christ speaks to them very sternly on that issue. But before all that, and while that was the bulk of the letter, but, but before that, he began in verse 19 of chapter 2 with something extremely positive. He looked at the church there and looked at the good works that, that characterized them, that were very solid, that were very full, and that were growing, and he praised them. He gave them high honor for that. Remember, good works is not just performance of actions, but it's, it's a walk, it's a life, which includes the heart and also actions that flow out of the heart. And he looked at this church and said, remarkable, there is love here, there is faith here, there is service here, there is patient endurance here, and it is growing. Amen. That's what he wants, important point here, that's what he wants from those who are his people. Important point about the order. That's what he wants from those who are his people, not in order to become his people. When he saves us, as Ephesians 2, 8, and 9 says, all by grace and not by works, He saves us and so changes us that then what happens, as Ephesians 2, 8, 9, 10 says right after it, He saves us to a walk of good works that is to characterize us. And He looks at that church and says, remarkable, this is wonderful. It's what it's supposed to be and it is there. And it's important, and I say that again because it's coming up again in our passage for today. Chapter 3, verses 1 to 6, a letter to the church in Sardis. 
and works are again important here. They, they figure in the story again, just like last week. But while last week what we saw was that good works, even an abundance of good works without truth, is not enough. This week what we're going to see is that the appearance of good works is not enough. Good works by themselves are not enough, and looking like you have good works is not enough. Before we go there, though, a little bit about Sardis. Sardis was another city in this same general region of what is what would now be western Turkey. And over its history, it had been a militarily very strong city because its main defensive point, its citadel, was built on a, on a high hill surrounded on three sides by impassable cliffs. So it was, it was basically impossible to attack the place, let alone capture it. You could only come at it from one direction, which was easily defensible. And so it had been a very strong city throughout all of its history. And yet, and this is relevant for the letter here today, yet twice in its history, those impassable cliffs that surrounded the place, twice enemies had come against Sardis and sent single soldiers or a very small detachment of soldiers to climb those cliffs undetected. And while everybody slept in their security, they snuck around, opened the front gate, and let the attacking enemy in. Twice, Sardis had thought itself secure, but while sleeping, had been overthrown and destroyed. You're going to hear a warning like that to the church in the passage today. And perhaps one other historical note would be helpful, given our, our cultural context around us here. When this passage talks about garments, as it does twice, it's going to mention garments, that's kind of a buzzword for us given where we live, but it's not for them. The word that's translated garments here is a plain old ordinary word for clothing. Everybody wore this. If you've ever seen a, a Bible picture, I mean, in a coloring book or in a children's Bible or something, and you see people dressed in these, these cloaks that kind of come down to mid-thigh or maybe down to the knee, that's a garment. Sometimes you'd wear a belt around it, sometimes it'd be a little shorter, sometimes you'd put some decoration on it, but it was clothes. So there's nothing special, there's nothing religious, there's nothing unique about it. Everybody and his brother wears garments. The uniqueness here is that they are white. White is special. And this connects a little bit to Sardis again. Sardis claimed, although no one's quite sure if this is true, but Sardis claimed to be the place that invented, who knows if this is actually true, but they claimed to be the place that invented the technology for dyeing and treating wool. And so the wool industry and the garment industry was a big deal in Sardis. And everybody knows that a white garment is hard to attain when starting with natural, natural materials. You gotta treat it to make it white, and that's a special garment. And you don't receive a white garment and then go roll around in the dirt in it. Soil it. Just like we don't wear a white dress shirt to mow the lawn or to make spaghetti sauce. And it's, it, we don't do that. And it's much easier for us to bleach things out of white. I mean, it's hard, but it, we can do it. Much harder back then. White garments, when you received them, you kept them special because they were for special occasions. 
If you cared about it, you would work to keep it clean. That's going to figure into this letter this morning also. All of this together, let me try to summarize where I'm going this morning by by giving it in, in a sentence. Here's the point. God is not pleased with hollow appearances, but has provided for us to have real life. God is not pleased with hollow appearances, with what looks good on the outside, but has provided for us. He intends for us to have and has provided for us to have real life. We're going to work towards that point in the passage, but let me read it. This is Revelation chapter 3, verses 1 to 6. And to the angel of the church in Sardis write, The words of him who has the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. I know your works. You have the reputation of being alive, but you are dead. Wake up and strengthen what remains and is about to die, for I have not found your works complete in the sight of my God. Remember then what you received and heard. Keep it and repent. If you will not wake up, I will come like a thief, and you will not know at what hour I will come against you. Yet you have still a few names in Sardis, people who have not soiled their garments, and they will walk with me in white, for they are worthy. The one who conquers will be clothed thus in white garments, and I will never blot his name out of the book of life. I will confess his name before my Father and before his angels. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Revelation 3. So I'm going to develop this along the lines of three points, the third one shorter than the first two, but we'll begin with the first one related to the problem. And, and really, I, I want to, I want us to spend some, some time thinking about this problem because the, the next point and a half or the next two points are, our solution to it, but they're going to be familiar to you. I hope all the Bible's familiar to you, but it'll be familiar to you. But the but the problem, we need to face the problem here. And here here it is: we must not be a church of hollow reputation. We must not be a church of. We must not be individual people of hollow reputation. That's what Sardis is. That's the problem. Verse 1, Christ introduces himself, and as is his practice throughout all these letters, he pulls something out of chapter 1 that has some relevance for the issue in the church he's writing to. So he introduces himself there by saying, I'm the one who has the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. And in chapter 1, we saw the seven stars represent the churches. He said this to the church in Ephesus as well. And essentially what he's saying is, in my right hand, I hold the church. I have authority over this church. I hold it. I've got it. But then he introduces the seven spirits of God. From chapter 1, verse 4, in a Trinitarian setup there, which is from Zechariah chapter 4. But the point is, the seven, the number seven, fullness, completeness, the sevenfold spirit. I have the Holy Spirit in the fullness of his ministry, of his spirit ministry. And I have the churches. 
And he mentions the Spirit's work here because this needs to get connected. He's got a problem over here, and he's got a solution over here. And he wants those two things to be set on the table right from the very start as he talks about the problem. And here's the problem. I know your works, which up to this point has been a good thing, but not anymore. He says, I know your works. Let's get down to the middle of verse 2. I have not found your works to be complete in the sight of my God. Are there works? Yes, in some sense there are works present, but they are incomplete. And it's not incomplete in the sense of quantity. It's an incompleteness of quality, of genuine spiritual quality. As verse 1 states, he says, I know your works, that you have the reputation of being alive. Literally, it's that you have a name alive. That you have a name The name, people think of you and they think, oh, they are alive. You are known for, in in this case, you are known as a church that is alive with good works. You are known as a church of love and faith and service and patient endurance and truth. That's the reputation you have. But I know better. I know you are not. In fact, you are dead. Ouch. I mean, think of that. That right there is a confrontation. Now, as I've said repeatedly, you've you got to realize that when the head of the church speaks to the church, he has a vast, wide, long, high, deep love for us. He loves his people. He loves the church. So when he... When he confronts, he confronts in love. But he's saying, you guys are known as, that is not the case. You're dead. Well, not completely dead. Verse 2, there are, there's a little bit still remains, kind of teetering on the edge. Maybe it's, it's about to die. There's something there still. And in verse 4, there are a few names in Sardis who have not soiled their garments who receiving this special white garment have have been careful to walk in a manner that is worthy of it. Saved and have been careful to live in a way that's pleasing to Christ. There are a few there, for sure. So it's not absolute, but what Jesus is saying, that the way things appear are not the way things are. In the eyes of God. I've not found your works complete in the eyes of God. Everybody else is fooled, but God isn't. So, so think about this. There's a type of love over this church in Sardis. There's a type of love there that many inside and outside the church look at and think is great and think, man, they are so loving. And God looks at them and says, no, they aren't. At least not how I define love. And there's a, there's a type of faith that Faith in some sense where people inside and outside say, man, those people really depend on God. And he says, no, they don't. And there's a service. This is the church right here. Boy, those people, they are, they are really committed to helping and feeding and, and nurturing and, and just doing everything for, for other people. 
in Jesus' name and for His goodness and not really. It's like 180. A 180 difference. It's all right there and yet it isn't. What's going on in such a situation? Well, to put a Bible phrase on it, they have a form of godliness, but deny the power of it. Or to put another Bible phrase on it, to quote Jesus, apart from me, they can do nothing. Which, of course, does not mean they do nothing. We're doing things all the time, but what he's saying is that it's possible to do a whole bunch of stuff and it really be nothing. So to look at all of this on the periphery here, the the shell, the crust, or on the outside, and to think, man, that's something. But when you poke it, you realize it's hollow. And this is what we need to consider. It's clear what he's confronting them on. It's clear that he's speaking to a church, but, but obviously a church is made up of individual people. And so we, we need to, to sit here for a second and realize that it is possible to feel some attraction to God and to recognize some sort of orthodox truth and to preach it from a pulpit or to sit and listen to it or to put money in an offering plate or to serve on a committee or to offer up a meal to the homeless. It is possible to do all of that and it be nothing. Dead. That's what's going on in in Sardis and churches still to this day. And pay attention, is this us? Is it you? People in churches everywhere in every age have confused feelings and actions with genuine dependence on God. And so I don't say this to you in a directly accusing way. So understand clearly, I am not trying to say my verdict is that this church is dead. If Jesus were to speak that, that's his right. And I'm not trying to say, pointing a finger at each individual person, you have a reputation, you have a reputation, you have a reputation, but you are dead. The whole point is he's looking at the heart in the eyes of God. I cannot look at the heart. Okay, so understand I'm not trying to stand in that place. But what I am trying to do is bring up from the Bible the very real possibility that appearance can be one thing very distinct and different from reality. So, where are we and where are you? Do you have a reputation? A reputation for good works. A reputation for trusting God. A reputation for living for others. But something inside here that if God were to to peel away the cover would say, hollow. Think of this on a couple levels. One, on on a church-wide 
pride, arrogance, deception level, which is the worst way to think about this. I mean, I mean, to cast it as the worst possible way to think about it. A church that thumps its chest and points to its programs and says, we are something. I mean, that's the worst way to look at it. But, but step, step down a second, and I think it's possible that we live here, maybe that you live here in some degree of sorrow. Because let me put another word on it, dry. Some of us can remember sometime in the past when you were intimate with God. But that hasn't been recently. That hasn't been months, years. And maybe you're carrying on with the with the program, carrying on with the program, so you come to the worship service and you play on the worship team, you sing along. Perhaps it, perhaps it is that you contribute to the, the ministry financially, you serve on a, on a committee out there, you're carrying out the program, but you know that the, the dimmer switch is kind of... You remember what it was like, but it's not that way now. Is that you? Maybe some of you are kids and you follow along with the program. I, I come here every Sunday morning. I go to, I go to the life training class. I, I sit there. I know tons of answers. I mean, maybe you're an ICS student. Ben, you go to class and you know all the answers in the Bible class because you've been there for years and only so many questions they can ask. And you know all that and you're not, you're not, Angry, you're not being deceptive and hiding something, but, but in reality, if you were to stop and say, do I have intimacy with God? You'd say, what does that mean? I know some facts and I do some things. Intimacy with God? What, what are you even talking about? Do you know what that means? Kids. Because it is not, it is not enough. Kids, I'm talking to kids here. It's not enough. It's not enough to just sit here and do the right thing. There's a God who wants a relationship with you. Who wants, who wants a connection like this with you in here in, in a real and genuine way on the inside. So there's, there's a wholeness in here that then leads to stuff that, that can be seen by others. But it starts in here. Do you even know what that is? Adults, do you remember that from some time back? We have to be aware of the problem before the solution means just anything to us. We have to be aware of the problem. And so I raise it in front of you and ask, is there more going on on the outside of your life than there is on the inside of your life? God wants the inside of your life. The outside always follows eventually. He wants the inside of your life. Is there wholeness there or is there hollowness there? 
when the eyes of God look into you, does He say, she is known as something, but that's not really what's there. When that happens, what develops is a formalism in a church or in individuals. Still professing orthodoxy, but with hearts far from Him. And so what follows is cold and lifeless and spiritually ineffective. It does not honor God and it does not actually profit us or others. And the answer to it is not do more. It's not get busy with more of the activities. The answer to it is related to a heart change. And it involves what follows in verse 3, and it involves how Jesus set the whole thing up, the church and its problem, with the Spirit. We have to be, we have to be clear on the problem first. What's needed is a change of heart to address that problem, a revival even. That's what takes us to the second point. I'll use the the language of the passage and, and then develop it. The second point begins to turn us towards the solution. Wake up to the danger of deadness. Wake up to the danger of deadness. Spiritual deadness. Christ twice uses the language, wake up here once as a command in verse 2, and then again down in verse 3. And the deadness that is present here in the church, it's almost snuffed out the life of the whole place. And he says, if you don't wake up to this, I'm going to come. And while you sleeping in your security, I'm going to come against you for your destruction. That's sobering. So we must wake up to this and not think, do not, don't let yourself off the hook as you evaluate, as you think this through, don't let yourself off the hook and think, yeah, I remember, I used to be different back then, but, yeah, you know, things come and go in life. It's, it's appropriate that I have this kind of feeling for my age. Young people and old people use that. Been there, done that, so now I've kind of settled in in my old age, or I'm not yet old enough to get serious about this. Don't hide behind that. Wake up. Wake up to a, a deadness in you. If, if it's there, which I can't say, I can't look into your heart, I can't say it, but if it's there, wake up. May He wake you right now. Look at verse 3. It, there's a command there in verse 3. An ongoing command. And here, here's how we begin to move to the solution. The ongoing command. So this is not a one-time thing. It is to be characteristic of life. Remember. Remember. 
Not just once, but bring it to mind and begin to roll it around in there. Remember, he says, what you received, what you heard. This is all about the message that is at the heart of the church. The good news, that the message, remember that. You received it. They, they, they themselves probably received it from an apostle. We receive it from the writing of the apostle, from the Bible. Maybe you hear it from a parent or from a pastor, but, but ultimately it's received from the word, heard. Remember that. Do you remember the good news of what God did to make you, to make a church? You and I were dead in our sins. Lost under the judgment of God. You're familiar with this, but, but think. This, this is a hard truth. And we, of all the people in the world, we people who hold the Bible should be simultaneously the most pessimistic and the most optimistic. At the same time, the, the pessimistic piece is trouble that is vast and has no solution. God in His law requires of individual human beings, God as Creator and King requires of us not decent obedience, perfection. Everywhere through us, in the heart, soul, and mind, and with all of our strength, to love Him, the Lord our God, with everything with no other gods before Him. No human being has ever done that. None of us. Which is why the Bible says, there is no one good, no, not one. And then recites a litany of charges against us. Our throats are open graves, our tongues practice deceit, etc. Romans 3. Utterly hopeless. Do you remember that? And then what did God do about it? Did He tell us to try harder to make ourselves worthy? No. He said, since you cannot make yourselves worthy, He in grace provided a righteousness for us. Gave a righteousness to us. We did not create it. He gave it. In sending His Son, God the Son, who came to earth, obeyed all of the law of God that hung over you with its requirement. He, God come in flesh, obeyed all of the law. A pure, spotless Robe of white that he then peeled off and clothed you in. Taking your dirty garment on himself to absorb then the wrath of God due against your sin. Hung on his shoulders. So that you stand clothed in white, pure before him. 
That is a righteousness provided by God for us. Do you remember that? And more than that, and this is important for the passage, more than that, from that very moment, from that very moment when Christ died on the cross to pay for sin, there was a provision of righteousness that when you trusted that, at that moment you were declared righteous in the sight of God. A standing, a status. You had a position before Him. But of course then, from that moment on, day after day after day after day after day, my battle, your battle against sin still continues. What does He provide to grow in us righteousness then? He puts in you God the Holy Spirit. You have a standing in righteousness and you have a strong ally, God Himself, to grow you in righteousness. What a good thing. He has not left you alone, but has actually come to you to enable you to walk with Him, to live in ways that are pleasing to Him and that are worthy of the name Christian. And why does that matter for this? Because the problem that we're looking at is out here, some sort of a life full of works and full of attitudes and behaviors that is not matched by an integrity and heart back here. How do you get the integrity and heart back here? The Spirit of God takes this message that He commands you to remember and He washes your mind with it, changes you. How does that happen? He changes you as He shows you in this Gospel, this message about what God has done for you. He shows you the goodness and the mercy and the grace and the power of God all for you. And like we always work, when something lovely is held up in front of us, we are drawn to it. When a lovely sunset is held up in front of you, you are drawn to it. When the newest gadget that you think is cool, is held up in front of you, you are drawn to it. You look at it. You marvel at it. You're wooed. God the Spirit takes this message to hold it up in front of your heart and woo you to Himself. Christian. The answer to the emptiness, the answer to the dryness is a spirit-dependent memory. 
a crying out to him, God, I know, and I know, I realize that I'm talking to you, and I don't know everybody here, but I know nine-tenths of you, and I know that I'm telling you things that you already know. They already know this. You notice he just tells them to remember. He doesn't even tell them explicitly what to remember. They already know. Remember what you heard is all he says. You already know this. Remember it. And and ask, cry out to God the Spirit, God help me to remember this. I know it and I forget it all the time. And I live as an orphan, abandoned, as if I am to make myself something. No, I am something. All by your wonderful, loving, gracious initiative and power. Spirit, would you convince me of that? Because I forget it and I don't really believe it. Remember, remember, remember. Please, for your own good, remember. This is the answer to the dryness that, that plagues you. I mean, I mean obviously, it's, it's not what pleases God that we be hollow people, but it's not what you want either. And the answer to the dryness and the emptiness in your soul is not a new sports car. Where did that come from? Good question. Why do you buy them? I I did that on purpose. I brought that from left field because you don't see that coming. That's how we live. I'm empty. There's something missing. I'm going through the motions and holding to the program at church. I believe the right stuff. I know, but there's something missing here. I know. I'll buy a sports car. What? Or maybe not a sports car. Maybe a computer. Maybe a new wife. That's true too. Surely the problem's her. It's not. The problem is that you don't remember. Oh, you know it. And you're wondering when I'm going to get done reciting it. You know it. You don't remember. And you have not kept it tight, as the passage continues, and have let go of it and have wandered off. So repent and turn back. Say, God, I am sorry. I'm sorry. And when the dimmer switch starts to go down, I bought a sports car. Ah. Repent. And cry out to God the Spirit that He would produce in you a vision, a sight of what this message is about. A God of grace who saves you when you are utterly without hope. A God of grace who saves you when you have no chance of anything going well. What a good God He is, the Spirit of God. I ask you that you would convince this people of the goodness of Jesus, of the goodness of a God of grace who planned all this and did all of this for us, for them. Spirit of God, will you please press on this people the facts that they already know.
And as these things run around in our minds, we get back in touch with the fundamental issues of life. We are passing through here. And nothing that you face... You know, Paul says that we face light and momentary troubles. If you think about Paul's life, to call that stuff light and momentary trouble makes a lot of us a little bit embarrassed. We face light and momentary troubles. We are passing through here. And as, as the Spirit of God rehearses to your mind this message that you have received, that you have heard, as He rehearses for you, you get back in touch with the real stuff that we are about. We are eternal creatures. Created, always creatures. Created things never become uncreated. We are always creatures. But we have an existence from now that's going to go on not just 50 years, 5,000 years, 50,000 years. And there is something coming there, which verses 4, 5, and 6 talk about. There's something coming there. And with the Spirit of God, rehearse before you and remind you of those truths. And you will see something marvelous. Marvelous. At which point I move to the third point, which is really kind of like point 2.5, because it's, it's right here related. So he calls us to awake, and depending on the response, here, this is the point, depending on the response, Christ will either visit in judgment or reward in triumph. The visit in judgment part first it's brief, and it's not very explicit, but it is there. Verse 3, If you will not wake up, I will come like a thief. I will come against you. Obviously, the come like a thief is a reference to a couple of the places in the New Testament where Jesus' second coming is described. But with a twist here, it's a coming against the church. Which could be one of two ways. There are always people in churches who are not actually Christians. And the deadness in you might be an indication that you aren't actually ever been connected, you haven't actually ever been connected to life. You look at a tree. This is how we prune our peach tree. You look at a peach tree, and there's a branch there. In the winter, they all look the same. Come summertime, when there's no leaves on that one, we cut it off. Because it's not actually connected. Maybe that's you. And you need to consider this message that you have heard and repent and believe and be saved. Kids, that's you too. You've heard this a lot. Kids, do you actually believe? But obviously Christ comes against the church in other varying degrees of discipline. He doesn't specify what that would look like here, but in some way, should we not just acknowledge we should want to avoid that? Whatever it is, no discipline is pleasant. So wake up. So there is a coming, a visiting in judgment that could be 
Even, as he said in the last letter, the taking of life. It could be the taking of the soul in eternal judgment, or it could be discipline of all kinds of varying sorts, all of which should say, wake up and respond positively, which is where the emphasis goes. 4, 5, and 6 are all about, this is where it's connected to the previous point, parts of the message that the Spirit, I pray the Spirit of God would press on you and remind you of. When he talks about being clothed in white and walking with Christ. End of verse 4. Will walk with me in white for they are worthy. What he's describing there is a victory triumph. A military victory triumph. It was not uncommon, not not every city-state did this, but it was not uncommon that cities would celebrate a military victory by clothing themselves in white for a great parade. You never wore white on the battlefield. Far too messy. Several different ways. So when you put on white, you're saying, now we sit down to the peaceful celebration. To walk with Christ as a conqueror. One worthy of being in that parade. One welcomed into the city in victory triumph with name heralded out, announced, he says, before my Father and before the angels. A name written in and never blotted out of the book of life. Which is his way of saying, I will surely keep you. I will surely own you. I will surely bring you with me in victory. Those who awake and respond. If you don't awake and don't respond, what does that say about your heart? What does it say about you? Look at that. If you're sitting here thinking, when is this going to be over? I just ask you to consider, why are you not concerned to awake and respond and press after a place in the victory parade, but instead are more concerned fundamentally with getting out of here? Why is that in you? If it's there, of course, I don't know. When we find warnings in the Bible, it's intended to, it's, it's a message spoken to a receptor. And if you have the receptor, you hear it and say, I want the victory. Yeah, you do, because he planted that in you. And here's how you go find it. Here's how you walk to pursue it. A Christian then is moved. And a non-Christian is deadened and turned off. Are you being deadened and turned off? Why? But brothers and sisters, there is a marvelous reality here of a life that is sure for you. A name in a book never blotted out. Announced before the Father Himself in heaven. Welcomed into a city in a great victory parade. Pure 
And spotless is that bride, cleansed by God himself. He does not want, he is not pleased with, you don't want an appearance that has no substance to it. And he has provided for you means for substance. The Spirit of God who lives in you and can work in you, and tools with which He can work. The message of God's saving work for you. So remember it and cry out to God the Spirit, show me, open my eyes, convince me, persuade me, woo me, reveal to me this God of grace, Spirit of God. He wants that for his church. He wants that for his people. And I think you want that too. So let me pray now and ask the Spirit to do that which ultimately is in his power. To move you to life. Let me pray and ask him to do that. Almighty God, I am thankful that you bring up before us the possibility of hollow appearance. That you confront us with the reality that sometimes churches and sometimes people look good on the outside but are dead on the inside. I'm thankful for that because we need to know. But I am even more thankful that you have not just left it there, but have provided means. A message and a teacher. And so, God, would you commission the Spirit of God to run through our hearts to shine on all that you have done at the cross to save and all that you are bringing to us one day to shine on that, to make it real. Would you commission the Spirit to do that? Spirit of God, would you please open our eyes to it? Would you begin to fill up our hearts like an aquifer fills with water? Maybe it's all been pumped out and it's dry, but Lord, cause it to seep back in. Fill our hearts a clear perception of your good and gracious love for us, your people. Produce wholeness. Produce life in my brothers and sisters here. Thank you for your kindness and thank you for your mercy. Thank you for your promise to never leave us nor forsake us. So work here now, I pray. 
and build a church that is pleasing to you. Whole. Full of good works that flow out of a heart that is in relationship with you. Thank you, Lord. We love you and we trust you. Amen. Thank you for listening to this message by Pastor Steve Clark of the Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City in Salt Lake City, Utah. Feel free to make copies of this message to give to others, but please do not charge for these copies or alter the content in any way without permission. We invite you to visit our website at www.slcevfree.org or call us directly at area code 801-943-0091. Our mailing address is Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City, 6515 South Lion Lane, Salt Lake City, Utah, 84121.